Welcome to Wood Talk. Now here are three guys who like to take big pieces of wood and make them smaller. Mark, Shannon, and Matt. All right, it's Wood Talk number 436 for May 21st, 2018. Everybody is back today. All three of us are here. This is so exciting. Everybody dance now. Do, 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 do. There he is. There's that sweet little man. <laughs> All right, so on today's show, we're talking about building complex reproductions, breadboard and tenon length, cutting board finishes, and match planing boards. And uh, shoot, where are the Patreon people? Hold on, you know what? Gmail. They're on Patreon. They're on Patreon. Let me see if I can get on my phone. Gmail changed things, and I don't have all my tags the way that they were before. So bear with me. Here we go. We want to go to the doctor and get your skin tags removed. That, yes, the dermatologist. (laughs) Uh, All right, so we want to thank a few folks who helped us out over on Patreon. That's something you could do too if you want to. It's at patreon.com slash woodtalk. All right, so here we go. You ready for this list? Uh, Kevin Martin, Devin Lewis, Robert J. Dry, uh, Matthew Steele, John Doyle, Ryan LeBlonde, Ben Holman, Tom Freestone, Frank Salgado, and J.W. Craftsman. And thank you so much. We really appreciate your uh, helping us out, folks. And if you do help us out, we'll announce your name at the top of the show, just like we did. And hopefully next time I'll be a little more prepared for that. I doubt it. Most likely not. <laughs> You're right. Okay, so let's get into the good stuff here. What is on the bench? And I'm going to go, I'm going to throw it to Matt because we haven't heard from him in a little while. But you're first on the list. I know. I'm, I'm going off script here. Oh. Adapt. Improvise, mm-hmm. Matt. Come this, on. This, this show is going to end in a disaster. It already, <laughs> it already is, so. No, world upside down. I'm not going first. Yeah. <laughs> I don't got much going on right now. I got back from uh, Europe on Tuesday night, and then I got sick on the way home. So oh, no. I've been sick from the whole time I've been back. So like cold, like a cold or like a a sick tummy? No, a cold, like a really like a head cold, like a lot of pressure and a lot of like nose stuff, and it's just been yeah, not fun. Nice. Uh, well, commercial airlines, modern day petri dishes. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Plus, a trip like that, I think, takes a lot out of you. Kind of weakens your immune system a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Rome maybe did, but Positano did not. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there was a lot of stress in Positano. <laughs> nah, it didn't look like it. What? No, that was my kind of vacation. Not with that kind of view. Yeah, I enjoyed your vacation. Thanks for sharing so much. <laughs> yeah, it was quite nice. I, I enjoyed. It's the like I looked well. look forward to logging in. It's like okay, Matt's six hours ahead of me, so I get to start my day seeing oh, yeah. what Matt's already done in the future. Oh yes. <laughs> well, and it's also nice because we just continued our text stream as if Matt was still in the States. So he's probably getting our texts like at all hours of the night. So usually like when I woke up in the morning, I'd have like a whole screen full of stuff. <laughs> it wasn't, it was insane. Cause I, you forget how many like notifications you get throughout the day. Yeah. And like everyone, apparently a lot of people that I talked to or like follow me are in the North America area. So when I'm sleeping over there, it's still like <laughs> evening. And that's when it's really popular to get stuff going on the internet, apparently, in North yeah, America. Right. So it was just like, just pages of crap I have to look through a single morning. I'm like, ah, whatever. <laughs> well, you get all those notifications from YouTube, too, because you're crazy. I do. YouTube, Instagram, and you, uh, you, whatever you guys are talking about. That's We call that text messaging. Ah, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Yahoo instant messaging. Yes. That's, what? Aim. It was a, uh, Oh wow. Yeah. Hey, well, the only thing worse than text is phone calls. That's true. 
They're way worse, though. Anyway, getting way off topic. Um, so I'll, I'll go. So, hey, welcome back. We're glad to have you back. In fact, last week we had the option to do the show and actually just decided not to. <laughs> because yeah, we just like, watched your Instagram that story. That just doesn't surprise me. Like, any excuse to take a week off. <laughs> oh, Matt's not here? Ah, uh, we, we, we can't do the show. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Don't try so, and, like, pose this as, like, some kind of, like, thing to make yourself seem, like, more... Like Matt's good at this kind of thing. Like you're trying to suck up to me a little bit. No, you're no, 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 no. Don't get, don't get me wrong. We didn't say you're good at this. We're just better when you're here. Oh, it's a very subtle. Right, yes. It's a very subtle difference. We need that yeah, third who, person. Who are you gonna? You can't stomp on anybody if I'm not here. <laughs> That's true. Shannon won't <laughs> let me. He's he's bigger than I am too. So he is. You can't stomp on Shannon. I don't know that. And your <laughs> head's too big to get stomped on by him. So Tried to step go. on his toes. Uh, well, anyway, uh, so we are glad to have you back and, uh, don't go away ever again. Um, oh, okay, good. <laughs> so for me, I'm working more on the executive desk. Uh, this is a continued guild project and it's a doozy and there's a lot of little details in it. And I, I have a feeling this is going to be one that's broken up into a lot of little videos and little parts, things that are not really, you can't go too far before changing gears and going to something else. Cause everything seems to impact everything else. So, um, the way I decided to treat this thing is basically each pedestal is going to be almost like its own little cabinet. And a lot of the dimensions are shared between the left and right pedestal, but you can kind of approach it in a little more of a systematic way. If you say, okay, now we're just working on the right side. Now we're working on the left side. One of them has drawers. The other one just has a door and adjustable shelves. So they're almost like two unique cabinets that share a lot of, you know, dimensions and, uh, you know, qualities between the two. And that seems to be working pretty well, but it's still a big project. And then I know I'm going to be going out of town a couple different times while this build is going on. So trying to get ahead of the game and trying to manage all that stuff is, is getting a little bit tricky. Traveling again. Oh, yep. yep. And the two personal trips. In fact, we've got a family reunion in Missouri and then we have a, uh, I got to head out to again for family head out to Jersey. So, and then, and then I got to teach at the Mark Adams school. It's going to be a busy <laughs> summer, man. I'll tell you that. Good stuff. Wow. You're so fancy. So cosmopolitan. I hate it. <clears throat> Matt goes to Positano, Italy, and you go to New Jersey. And Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> New Jersey and Indiana. Uh, wow. Woo, look at me, guys. Living the life over here. Wow. I think I'm going to go to Branson, Missouri, just to, to keep it highbrow. <laughs> yeah, you should. Go back to Maine. All right. So what do you got going on, Shannon? Oh, boy. I was just saying before we started recording, uh, this is what happens when you open your big mouth. And uh, I have spent every single day this week, starting about six or seven o'clock in the morning and running till six or seven at night, cladding a bunch of timber frames, uh, timber beams, uh, Douglas fir centers, everything from six by eights to eight by eights, uh, three by twelves. Four by sixes, four by eights, four by twelves. Uh, man, running from eight feet up all the way up to 24 feet long. So we have, we get inquiries all the time for large timber sized beams. Um, sometimes it's just aesthetic. Most of the time they want it to be structural. Mm-hmm. And while Sapili, and, and a lot of them want exotic species. You know, Sapili tends to come up a lot because it's mahogany-ish, and they want that rich mahogany look. So the problem is, is not that Sapili or mahogany or any of these are not structural timbers. It's just that nobody has actually done the math. 
no architect has done the science and figured out all the design values. No engineer, I should say, has done all the design values mm -hmm. to say, okay, this is how it does under stress, under loads. But they do for Douglas fir, you know, and other <laughs> associated structural timbers, dimensional lumbers so that we make studs and we make rafter tails and, and spines and all that stuff. It's the math has already been done there. So it's just easier instead of trying to reintroduce an issue, you know, a different species that could maybe cause problems, probably won't, but no one is going to, you know, stake their career or their, their liability on <laughs> the thing. Safety on it. So you, you go with what you know. You know, you use the typical construction stuff. Plus, let's face it, a six by eight by 24 foot long solid Sapili beam might be a bit expensive. You think? I don't know. I got a that, couple of those in the backyard. It is nearly impossible to dry a timber that big without all kinds of cracking and checking, which probably won't affect the structure, but it doesn't look all that nice when it's meant to be an interior aesthetic beam. So what we have done is taken Douglas fir timbers and clad them with three H inch thick Sapili veneer, which was just like, okay, this sounds like a really cool idea because a lot of people have this question. Of course, they don't understand that, you know, solid timbers check and everything. They want it to look absolutely immaculate. So this is the way to do that. Well, <laughs> when we decided to do it, it's like, all right, well, we'll use a vacuum bag. All right, who here's done vacuuming bag experience? <laughs> Stupid me, I raised my hand. And here we go. <laughs> 50 hours later, uh, sore muscles everywhere, barely able to like get stand right now. I'm just exhausted. Bruises, cuts everywhere. It's been but I, I shouldn't shouldn't complain because it's actually been really fun, you know, to certainly not be sitting at a desk, but since I am the marketing guy and I will be doing a video on this and blogging about it for the company site, it's like hey, what better way to know what happened than to do it myself? Sure. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just been, it's been myself and one other guy that runs our, our millwork arm out there running these beams. And it's just been a very different experience because, of course, as a hand tool guy in my own shop, um, there's not a whole lot of hand tools going on in the yard. You know, we've got the Baker resaw just like, <laughs> it, it's just ridiculous. Like everything has a power feeder on into the yard. <laughs> It's like no one actually does anything except lift the board onto the rollers and then the power feeder grabs it. And so I'm taking photos of like the resaw in action. And there's just basically a lot of people just standing around staring at a machine doing homework. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's really very anticlimactic. <laughs> and then there's another guy on the other end who like pulls the board out and like separates the book match and like shakes the dust out in the middle and then labels them because, of course, we've got to keep them all matched so that we don't. You know, so we're trying to make the beams look like they're solid. We don't want to just like, you know, hit them in the face with, hey, look, we clad this. We want it to look kind of solid. So we're using quarter sawn faces for the edges and flat sawn faces for the faces so that, oh, you know, nice. it looked just like an actual beam. Well, it actually looks real. Great, this right. Is, this is physically possible. But the problem was <laughs> is it's very difficult to get any African wood, anything over about 18 feet long. 16 is usually the top end, but just because of shipping restraints and container links and everything, you can't get 24 foot sapili. It's not that the tree doesn't grow that big. It's just nobody saws it that way. So we've had to book match the veneers for like the 20, 18, 20 and 24 foot beams. We've had to use two skins per face. So we've, we've created a book match there with a cool scarf joint that joins them together hmm. Um, in some instances we did a slip match, other instances we did a book match cause it just looked cooler, but 
it's just been really fun. Like the level of detail that we, you and I would put into a piece of furniture and choosing green and color. We never really get to do that in the commercial sector, except for now. Like, and it just got a chance to really geek out and selecting your skins, which is the glue face, which is the show face. Where do we want to get this cool match? You know, um, and then this vacuum bag, 28 foot long vacuum bag. That's crazy. With a, with a, a vacuum pump that, you know, NASA would use to, like, <laughs> to vacuum test rockets and things. It's just ridiculous. So um, the other thing is, is I've got to use a water-based veneer adhesive. Um, most of the time, industry standard would be Unibond 800 for this, which is kind of like your two-part epoxy. You've got an activator and a resin. This stuff is just called pre-cat veneer adhesive. Now I can't remember where we got it. Like veneersupplies.com, I believe. Um, I think that's Joe Woodworker. Yeah. I think that's his website. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's all water-based. And it's the same as Unibon. It's that like really, really fine powder. And it's all very exacting mixture, you know, with the pounds per, I think it's like, seven to to ten mixture of water to to powder um and it looks like nutella too so you're Mm -hmm. brushing it on you're getting hungry but uh it's great because it gives you a really long open time more than double the open time of unibon which you think about it we're trying to get as many beams in the bag at a time because it's at least a four-hour press time um this water-based stuff needs about four hours at 80 degrees to to cure 90 degrees, it's, you know, less than that, which is great because we had to set up inside one of the dry kilns because it's the only space big enough for a 24-foot beam. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we actually cranked up the heat in the dry kiln, which was great for the cure time, bad for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it was 95 degrees in the kiln. Oh, jeez. It's, like, it's Arizona like weather in there, class man. in here, man. It's crazy. But it was it was fine on Monday and Tuesday because the weather outside was hot, and then this storm front came in, and it's been in the 60s the rest of the week. And this glue does not like anything below 70 degrees. So we actually had to turn on the kiln in order to just get it up to glue temperature, which I started thinking, what a cool option that is. <laughs> like, yeah. you have to think about, like, in your own shop, like, oh, it's too too cold for finishing, too cold for glue. Well, close the doors and crank it up to 220 degrees. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> so it, it's been really cool. Each beam takes two pressings, and you press the top and the bottom, and then we flush trim the edges because each veneer is you know the skin is meant to be a you know a little bit wide so you can trim it up flush then we rotate it 90 degrees and press the edges in the second press to get all four sides and then you flush that up and then basically belt sand random orbit to kind of blend everything together and man these things just look awesome like you you would never know that there is a a douglas fir beam inside of that unless Mm -hmm. until you come right down to the end it's just so cool to see but it's also really cool to see them going. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you know, hey, that twenty-four beam is cool. The twenty-four foot beam is cool until you move it eight times. Oh, yeah, like just never come back. I don't ever want to see it again. Before I recorded today, I finished finished the three by twelve by twenty footers. Damn, um, we had five of those, and I'm just so glad to see them wrapped in plastic. And if anything damages them at this uh, point, like, I don't, I don't care. Like I just don't ever want to see it ever again. Oh man. That sounds like a crazy, yeah. crazy project. Now the bit the what I really need to do is make sure that I can get to Hawaii once they're installed. Cause I just need to see these things. There you go. 
So uh, this is, do you know where it's there. going? Like a, a hotel or something? No, no, it's in a private residence. Oh, really? Um, and boy, is the view incredible. Ooh. Yeah, we've got, I've got photos. Last time I, my Hawaii rep was out there um, when we actually got this order, they're essentially waiting on us at this point. And it's like a great room where imagine like a peaked roof, but the one entire wall is nothing but glass. And that wall looks out onto the beach. Um, you can see, uh, well, actually, it's in the news. You could see Kilauea <laughs> in the background. <laughs> now, this is on the side where none of the lava flows go. But um, it's just the view is absolutely incredible. Wow. So I think the ceilings are about 30 feet at the, the height of the peak. Um, the 24-footer is the spine that runs down the room. The three by twelves are the joists that run down, radiate down from there. The eight by eights are the vertical posts that those joists sit on. Um, and then there's a bunch of other random sizes that fit in other areas, three by tens and things like that. Wow. So it, it's just going to be so cool. The funny thing is, is like no one's even going to notice. Like you're going to walk into the room and what you're going to see is Kilauea and the Pacific Ocean. You know, mm-hmm. no one's going to look up and go, oh, look at those Sapili beams. So we're also we've been like super, super picky. And then we have to keep reminding ourselves, yes, this will be 30 feet off the ground. No one's going to see that little bit of tear out. That's crazy. No though. one's going to care. Sounds like a budget friendly project. Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. I don't even know how much profit we're going to make on this because yeah. this is the first time we've done it. And I don't think anybody had any idea. Like, I mean, the veneer <laughs> bag itself was a thousand dollars. The pump is another thousand dollars. Wow! So you, you know, got to get a few more of these. Labor, <laughs> we've easily got a hundred, hundred and ten, hundred and twenty hours, man hours wow. into this job, and that doesn't include like when we need to load the veneer bag, which all kinds of fun jokes running around the yard about how many men does it take to load the wood condom. Right. <laughs> and you got like seven guys, you know, three on each side of the beam and one just like shimmying the condom down over the the beam or the veneer bag, sorry, over the beam. So <laughs> hey, you know, it's a family for, show. for twenty minutes, twenty minutes times seven, those hours add up really quickly when it comes to billable hours. So yeah, it's I don't know. I think it's gonna be real difficult to price this going forward just because I, I it's like making custom furniture. How can you possibly make any profit on this? There's just so much time that goes into yeah, it. Yeah. That's crazy not my job fortunately yeah well it was cool to Our watch fortunate. gotta tell you that yeah. all right so let's get into what's new only have one thing here and you probably if you're in woodworking circles you probably did hear about this already and i figured we'd mention it our good buddy tommy mack is suing wgbh over the rough cut name and this is uh, there's a lot of speculation about what's happening here and it's just interesting normally this would not be that big of a deal but it's woodworking and not a lot happens so, <laughs> so it's news, everybody. Oh, it's so true, though. <laughs> Someone's you. private life is news now. Um, it's it's an interesting thing, and uh, I don't think anybody really knows the exact details other than the parties involved, and we probably won't know for a while. But uh, you know, basically, is is the bone that he's picking is they're keeping the rough cut name, and they move to a new host, and it's basically a new show. It's really not even the same show. Uh, but now with fine woodworking involved, it's rough cut with a person's name. That sounds a lot like Tommy McDonald is Tom McLaughlin. So, uh, you know, again, I don't think, I don't think that that was done intentionally, but it's a byproduct of no, this. I mean, Tom was this on the thing. show like three or four times, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, he was basically road tested as a co-host and now he's a regular host. 
So, it, oh, so is that what you were doing? You were being road tested and you failed. I failed. Uh, oh, well, I'm sure I could have. I wouldn't have picked me based on my performance on that episode. I wouldn't have picked me. I definitely wouldn't have picked uh, me. Um, I but, say that to my wife all the time. Like, why? <laughs> like, I wouldn't have picked. I don't know me. why you what, picked what me. What were you thinking? What's wrong with you? Uh, so yeah, this is interesting stuff. Uh, if you're into like you know patents, trademarks, all those things, this is this might be fun for you to watch. Um, but honestly, it's you know I, I wish Tommy the best and, and hope that this works out for him. Um, but I don't yeah. I don't know enough to even have an opinion on on what's actually happening here. I don't think anybody does. That's why we speculate. Well, good luck, Tommy. All right. Uh, I think we got some kickback I here. I don't know if that's good luck or not. Would he would he bankrupt WGBH if he won? Then that could be no more. I, well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think there's any winners in this. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, even if, and, regardless of who wins, technically, it's just kind of a bad situation that, that no one wants to see these people, these parties in. All right. Let's get to our kickback. So Jim, I think I got a voicemail. Yeah, Jim has a question. This is specifically for you, Shannon. Ooh. Question for Shannon from the Vertical Member Show. First, can I just say met- that I love the fact that we name our shows things that people have to repeat in the future? <laughs> <laughs> just hearing him. Some, the Wood Condom episode? Yeah, right. I was. I did not realize that was one of our show names. The Vertical Member thinking, Show? <laughs> what the hell podcast is named The Vertical Member? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's ours. And why haven't I heard of it? That's only, our handiwork. Podcast. <laughs> oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> Let's get back to Jim. Member show. First, you mentioned at work staff members changing straight knives for helical knives in the planers. Why would they not just use helical knives all the time? Second, if the species that starts with O is so inexpensive, why would the manufacturer use aspen for a core? Jim Randolph. Sticks in the mud wood shop, Diamond Head, Mississippi. Okay. What say you, Shane? Right. Very official sign-off there, mm-hmm. Jim. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so first question was, why change uh, straight knives? Um, you can actually get a better finish with a straight knife. Um, if you've looked, you look real close at spiral head, you get that kind of almost dotted-looking surface, like cross-hatching surface. A straight knife will actually give you um, a cleaner surface because you're only getting one line across the board instead of the cross hatching. And if you set it up properly, in other words, if you're meeting Architectural Woodworking Institute standards, which is number of knife marks per inch, and I don't remember what that number is, but it's it's not very many, um, you get a much smoother looking finish. Certain woods will also behave a little bit better there. Um, and also just sometimes the difference in steel, high speed steel to carbide. So if we're using teak, which is highly rich in silica, or if we're using EPE, which is harder than rock, we like to use carbide, but there are some softer species where we like to use the high speed steel and you just get a better finish that way. Hmm. The fact of the matter is we're not really changing blades that much because we have the extra planer. We usually just keep the straight (laughs) knives on the 30 inch planer and the the helix head on the uh, 24 inch planer. So, that yeah. can be the new woodworking thing, having two planers, like two bandsaws. <laughs> yeah. It's not a bad idea. Sure. And they both need to be 30 inches, of course. Of course. Right. Well, at least. At least. Yeah. Well, I mean, so you need, you I need could. need a planing room. I could see this with uh, two drum sanders. 
Have them permanently set up with two grits, two table saws, one, one permanently no. set See, up with the data blade. You just get a two-head drum sander. No, you get two, two. That's, that's, what, we're do, that's what we're doing yeah. with those beams. That's true. You know, we've got 80, 60 grit on one belt and uh, 80 grit on another belt, and you just run them through. And right, you're done. but then you need one that's 120 and 180. Oh. <laughs> like, why stop there? <laughs> so, uh, Have you seen those ones that have not only two heads, but there's two heads on either side and you can run them in opposition to one another? No. So you bring one board out the other side, flip it around and feed it back in the outfeed side and it's running the opposite direction. So you actually could put four grits on it. Who makes Pretty that? Cool. Um, the, a lot of the wide belt sanders now have the two drums because okay. they're they're so wide, like the 48 inch ones. Yeah. And you can run the paper across them, but you always get that little line it's right. like the the outboard, what do you call them, the open-ended drum sanders, mm-hmm. where like you bring it in, you flip it around, you always get that little line. Right. So what people just decided to do is why not just run them the opposite direction? All of these big industrial ones, you can run the motor, run the drum in any direction you want. So then people are putting like wire brush in one end. Most of the hand-scraped flooring mills, that's what they do. They have like oh. the scrapers on one side and the yeah, sanding yeah. on the other. So they're actually reversing the, the, the rotation of the drum. To go the other way. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So when the I thought board comes it was the outfeed. You flip it 180 degrees and yeah. send it back in the way it just came out. Okay. I gotcha. Which isn't real fun when you've got a 20 foot long board. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, interesting. Not only idea, do you need though. in feed and out feed, but you need swing room. So, right. Anyway, what was the other question? Something about, something about uh, not using, or if, if something is the outer wood is cheap enough, why use Aspen for the internal? Almost like what we were just talking about with your laminated beam. Oh, all right. Well, Aspen is really lightweight. Um, that's primarily, and it supposedly, I don't put a whole lot of stock into this, but there are like scientific experiments on screw holding capacity, screw holding ability, poplar versus Aspen versus fur. Um, a poplar supposedly holds screws the best, but the biggest reason for Aspen is it's lightweight. It makes a very light panel. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So we got another one here. This one's from Andy. And I believe this one is for Matt. Oh. Hey, Matt. I love your channel, and I made a valiant attempt at following your Scraps into Cutting Boards video. I have a question for you about the general finishes salad bowl finish that you recommend in that video. Basically, how do you know when you're done applying it? I wound up putting on too much, and I built up a polyurethane coat. It looked great on day one, but it's now chipping out in thin white lines from the slicing action of knives on the cutting board. I obviously applied too much, but it was unclear when to stop. As you say in your video, the end grain of a cutting board drinks up large quantities of, of, of this finish, and it makes sense to fill the grain with a hardening finish so that it can't be penetrated by water or any food matter or oils that could later rot. So how do you know when you've applied enough and when do you stop? Thank you guys for the excellent podcast. I love Wood Talk. Yay. <laughs> Yay. So it's been like oh, it's been like at least two years since I've been a cutting board. I'm, pr- I'm proud to say that. I'm a recovering cutting board addict. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I've been cutting board free for two years. <laughs> Oh, it feels so good to say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so basically, when you're applying that uh, that salable finish to the surface, if you're doing it for the first coat, it should really just drink in as much as it could possibly drink. And I haven't had any occurrences where it's like 
like an hour later, there's still puddles on the surface. It should look kind of dry after about an hour. Mm-hmm. If there's anything left on there, you can kind of wipe it back or spread it around. And then I would put a second coat on. It was really light. And that was just to kind of fill in any little bit of wood that might still be thirsty. And that was it. There was no uh, surface finish build at all, which you really want to avoid building a, f- a film finish on the cutting board because it'll cut through the finish and it'll start chipping, uh, like Andy was mentioning. But just keep it from looking too wet after a few minutes or an hour or whatever, and it should be all right. Sounds good. Wow. It's interesting wow. how many uh, how many people vehemently disagree with this finishing method for a cutting board. Ah, I'm over it. Like the other day, because Pop Woodworking is doing this weird thing where they're like oh, yes. rehashing I was old like, oh, stuff. Mark got young again. <laughs> and they made like this is like a nine year old video of of me talking about the cutting board finish. And I, I don't know if anyone commented on it and I don't want to read the comments if they did. Uh, because making a statement about that like eight, nine years ago was a little easier than it is today where everybody, yeah. everybody knows everything now. <laughs> so, uh, but it's still to this day, like anyone even thinks about putting a varnish product in or around a cutting board. You just, you just get hammered. It's like, not food safe. You're like, going to die. It's fantastic. I'm going to laugh at you. It makes yeah, a big there's difference. There's no maintenance at all. Yeah, I haven't done any maintenance on any of my boards. It's been four years. They look almost brand new still. Well, they have knife lines in them, but aside from that, they look fine. I have one that someone gave me that was done in mineral oil, and it just fades away. Every single time you wash the board, you're washing away the finish inside of it. Yeah, I've got yeah. a um, that, that cutting board that Alex Snodgrass gave me that's really nice. Um, I've only had the thing for a couple of months, and it's already in worse shape than my yeah. the cutting board that was in that original cutting board video. <laughs> And it's again, I think people misunderstand what we're talking about here. We're not talking about building a thick film that then flakes off into the finish. We're talking about the fact that those are just big open pores and you're filling them. So this thing isn't a sponge for liquids. Yes. Yeah. And it does counteract the the thought process that says that that wood has a natural antibacterial quality to it uh, because you're kind of filling it with this resin material. So if there were antibacterial, antibacterial qualities sort of inherent in the wood, we might be taking that away, but I I don't I haven't seen any evidence, at least in my personal use, that would tell me that this is doing any kind of like negative thing to to us or the food or the cutting board. So it looks good. It works. It still looks me. good. Definitely looks way way better. I think a lot of people are disappointed when they make a beautiful cutting board and they give it the mineral oil wax treatment and they they realize how bland and and matte <laughs> and matte that looks and they they don't like it. It's kind of funny. Well, and then give it a few months, it'll look even more bland. It'll look even worse. Faded. All right. Yeah. You know, and it, that makes me worry, actually, because I've made, I don't know, not as, as maybe seven, maybe ten cutting boards total. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have a single one of them. Like, every one of them has been a gift. And I started using the mineral spirits thing, because that's what you were supposed to do back in, you know, ten years ago. Mineral oil. And I perish to think of what they must look like now. People are like, you know, this is a crappy gift. Man. That Shannon, that's <laughs> falling apart. Oh, look at I this put terrible it in the, cutting board. Put it in the dishwasher and it doesn't even hold itself together. Great. <laughs> right. Now it's just a bunch of little blocks in the bottom. <laughs> yeah, I used hide glue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got you to gotta keep after those things. Like if you're just doing one of these complex boards and you're only doing mineral oil and wax, you really have to keep up with it. You can't give it long 
liquid exposures because it's still drinking up mm-hmm. liquid. Uh, they, it's just not a durable thing. It's just the way it is. All those glue joints with those end grain boards. It's a, that's a lot to worry about. Yeah. It, the thing I like about it, cause I was selling them too, is like it puts the onus on the owner to take care of that board and, most people aren't going to take care of it. No, no. And they're going to feel like I have a crappy product now because it looks like crap after a month, but it's really their fault because they didn't do the care instructions. Yep. So anyway, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. All right, let's go to our, I'm glad we beat this dead horse some more. Yes. Well, it's been a while. Feels good. It's been a while since we talked about this. Uh, Feels good. Feels so you so remember good to beat this horse. You guys remember like a week or two ago, we talked about that, that, uh, surfacer thing in uh, the Ishitani dudes video and Bob, mm-hmm. uh, Bob, our good old friend years ago, you probably heard us talk about Bob Rosieski. Uh, he called in and wants to let us know what it is. Hey guys, it's Bob Rosieski and I had uh, some kickback for you on episode 434. Uh, that machine you're talking about, the planing machine. Uh, I think what you're referring to is what is called a super surfacer. Um, my understanding of those machines is that they are designed for traditional Japanese uh, like post and beam construction where everything is finished with a hand plane surface. There is no um, abrasive use at all. So they design the machine to be able to plane large beams for their traditional like timber frame post and beam style construction so they can just get the finished surface right out of the machine and then not have to hand plane the beams after they came out of a machine so that's actually that's my understanding of why the machine was invented Hmm. someone a little bit more knowledgeable may have some more information but uh, other than that that's what i know thanks guys well cool good to hear from you bob thank you for that uh, information and I noticed Bob was very uh, clever about saying show 434 as opposed to referencing the show Rough Ride on the Back End. Rough Ride on the Back End. That's the one with you two, right? <laughs> What's that? That's the one with you two? Yeah, I think so. What was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah looking yeah. at the What's so on the Back I don't remember hearing this at all. <clears throat> that was I a two for a show, yes. Uh, all oh. right. So if you want to leave us some kickback or ask us a question, you could send us a voicemail using your voice memo app on your phone and just send that to woodtalkonline at gmail.com and we will play it on the show. Okay, let's get to our emails. So I got the first one here. This is from Robert Murray. He says, do you think an intermediate advanced woodworker could build a version, uh, doesn't have to be identical, of the Blacker House chair that's at the William Eng School? Uh, let's see. So he says, I guess William Eng sells templates. And he said, so if I just had the templates and your videos, Mark, um, and let's see, and also I guess the dining chair class and um, that we have in the guild. So just kind of combining a couple different things. He says, I think it's possible, though, would require a few leaps, but I'm curious what you think. And I thought this was kind of interesting because I think it really depends on who is doing the building. Um, having taken the class and actually building it with the templates and all the jigs and having the guy who, uh, who basically redesigned his own version of the blacker house chair, having him right there. I still looked at parts of this project and thought, I don't think I would have ever been able to come up with that. Like the, the, the way this part is put together, the, the way that joint, you know, a lot of times when you have these curved parts, the armrests are curved, the legs are all trapezoidal. There's a lot of stuff to think about. And some people are really good at figuring that stuff out. So if they have the templates and they have a few pictures, they can make it happen. I don't think I'm one of those people. And there are things going on, uh, like the, the joint of the back legs to the crest rail. 
the angle that they're going at, there's actually, they're angled, but they're also, they're on a curve. And there is a straight spline that's cut through this curved leg into the um, uh, crest rail. Lost my train of thought there for a second. So he's using the multi-router to kind of make sure this is all consistent and all these different jigs and angled fixtures and things that are going on the multi-router. So I'm wondering if the class was approached differently, I might have seen it differently, but so much of the problem solving was already done for me that I looked at that and I go, I don't know that I could go home and make another one of these based on what I did in this class. So to, to answer your question, it really depends. You know, some people are of a mindset that can, with the information you just mentioned, that that having that stuff on hand would be enough. And for some people, it's not. And even though I consider myself a pretty decent woodworker, I don't know that I'd be able to uh, to recreate it. Even having built the, the thing in someone's class, I, I would have a hard time replicating a lot of those operations that we did without someone there guiding me. Also, I'm stupid. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I often view that as the, um, like the, whether or not a class was successful or not. Certainly I like walking out with a finished project, but I don't know if it's something that I can't recreate back at my own shop. I, I feel like I've been let down a little. I, see, I think you're a woodworking idealist in that sense. I think most people who are taking classes, <laughs> yeah. they want to go home with a finished product and they're pissed if they don't. So it's more about the single, I, I, I'm sure there are people like, and I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I do think that that is a, a way to judge a class is whether or not you learned enough to reproduce this item. But some people kind of look at it as, well, I'll spend $1,500 and I'll come away with a $3,000 chair. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. better than buying it. I'll, I'll go there and actually build it. And they never plan to make another one. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh, and, and if you know that, like, there's no way I'll ever have a shop set up this way. So yeah. this is my way of going and using someone else's shop, someone else's. Yeah, that's a good point. So this uh, just really quickly, I wanted to ask you guys who both have like dabbled in, in reproductions to some extent or another. Are there things out there? I mean, Matt, you just did a Queen Anne high boy. There are things on the Queen Anne high boy that I look at that I'd be very intimidated by uh, if I just had to figure it out. So. Are, are there things you guys have seen in some of these more, more complex pieces that even at the, the amount of time you've had in woodworking that you still look at and go, nah, I'm not even sure how I would do that. Does that ever come up? <laughs> some t- like for some stuff, it's more like I, I know how it's done, but it's like, I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of where my mind usually goes with that. Okay. Yeah. Where I look at something I'm like, I don't know if I want to, if I want to do that, if I have the skills to do that, or if it would even come out looking anywhere near that. Right. But I understand the process for the most of the things I've seen. So no, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. Uh, I pretty much always know that I could figure out how to do it, especially with, from a hand tool approach, because it really just comes down to marking it out and cutting to the line. But then I look at it and go, okay, like a, a good example, Matt, you just finished that high boy gooseneck moldings. Yeah. Like doing that by hand, it's a gouge and it's a scraper. That's and it just why I don't do sucks. it by hand. <laughs> it just <laughs> sucks. It's like, yeah, that's, I know how I could do it. And I would be so frustrated and just be like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so, but like looking at the blacker house chair, I mean, compound angles. Yeah. To me, it would be like, 
I need to come up with maybe a full size drawing that I can set a bevel gauge off of, maybe some sight lines and things, and I'd I'd work it out. Um, but yeah, I'm with you, Matt. I'd look then step back and go, do I really want to do that? <laughs> Is this what I want to do with my life? Uh, <laughs> Where did that go wrong? <laughs> uh, cool. Um, well, you know, and the funny thing with the blacker house too, when you get when you really get up on that chair. And you start to evaluate some of the subtle things. I think if you were just operating from templates and a photograph, you'd miss some things. Um, there are subtle tapers in places where you wouldn't expect them. Um, there's just uh, there's a lot going on that isn't totally obvious, and that's that's where you start to 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 miss some of those things. But I mean, it, it could be a pretty close copy. It just might be missing a couple of little fine details, but which is not that big of a deal. Okay, Matt, you're up. Boom. Uh, I forgot to write that who this is from. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Uh, how long should your tenons be on a breadboard end? This table is 96 inches long, 42 inches wide, inch and 5 eighths inches thick. Breadboards are 5 and a quarter inches wide. They are included in the overall length, 96 inches. Is the answer dependent on the type of wood? Pine versus ash versus oak versus walnut, etc. Keith Johnson. I read that whole thing. Look at that. Is that who it was? Yep, Keith, Keith Johnson. Thank you, Keith. That's a fantastic question. So... Before like reading this question, I never really even thought about this to myself. Normally, on the pieces I make with breadboard ends, I try to make the the mortises in the breadboards like as deep as possible, that I could like possibly make them to support the the weight of the table or the weight of someone like sitting on the end of the table. Mm-hmm. So, like the farmhouse table, for example, those tenons are three inches long, and the breadboard ends are eight inches wide. And I went with three inches because that's like as deep as I could get with the router. And then I still have to get a little bit of chisel work at the bottom to clean up the rest of the waste at the bottom. But that gives a lot of support to the actual breadboard and itself as it's connected to the table because you're not gluing the thing in place all the way across the entire length. The breadboard end is literally sitting on top of the tenon on the table. So if someone comes along and sits on the end of the table, you want to make sure there's enough support there they don't break the whole thing off the table, ideally. Um, so if I had to throw like, like a ballpark number at it, I'd say a third of the width of the breadboard or maybe a little bit deeper, you know, as much as possible. Give as much support as you can and uh, enjoy your life. <laughs> it's great advice. That's what I got. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like on this one, I'd probably do like two, two and a half inches, something like that. I don't know. Sounds good. Use pocket holes. Lots of pocket holes. Yes. Many screws as you could fit in per inch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't forget to enjoy your life. <laughs> all right this one's from dave he says i'm trying to improve my hand tool skills by doing many of the things i would typically do by machine by hand i'm having issues with joining boards for panel glue ups trying to get clean and tidy glue lines my understanding is if you clamp two boards together side by side and plane the top level minor variations in angle won't matter as they'll cancel each other out provided you glue them up in the same position in the correct orientation this is called match planing by the way <clears throat> so whilst i so whilst, ooh, whilst, <laughs> cool whip, whilst I think I'm doing that correctly, my glue-ups still look awful. What could I be doing wrong? The problem with this question is still look awful doesn't tell me much. What does that mean? Are they gappy? <laughs> Are they not level? Um, but here's the thing, because I, I run into this a lot. Match planing is is like... It's like this silver bullet technique. Just fold the boards together like a book, plane them together, and everything will work out perfect. Not so much. (laughs) Um, In reality, you still have to be able to joint a good edge. You still need to be able to get a flat edge. 
And you still need to make sure that the plane is creating a single geometric plane across both of those boards. If there's any variance whatsoever, if your plane, you know, waggles from side to side and changes, creates another facet there, the complementary angles will not complement and it won't come together cleanly. But what I find most people have trouble with jointing edges is they still tend to create a hump in the middle. So anytime I'm joining an edge for a glue up, I always start in the middle of the board and remove about three to four passes in the middle of the board so that I intentionally create a hollow. And this is while you're match planed, um, while you've got your boards folded together. Then you can work. You want to hollow out so much in the middle that when you are jointing the edge, you are actually skipping the middle of the board. So when you start on one end and you go to the other, you hear the plane, the plane blade stop cutting in the middle for a couple of passes. Then once you start getting that full length shaving, then you know that you don't have a hump in the middle that the joiner plane is riding up and over. The other thing is because that slight waggle can happen and you can throw off that angle, what I'll actually do is offset the boards slightly. So you fold them together like a book, but instead of placing them flush to one another in your leg vise or your face vise or whatever, I'll offset them slightly. So there's a little step between them. And what that means is it, it, when you set the plane down, it cants to the left or the right, but it registers firmly. Now, instead of you trying to balance on an edge, it's actually riding on two points on the outside of both of those boards. And it, it only can sit on those boards that one particular way. And since you're, you know, since you're, you're creating complementary angle, it doesn't have to be level. It could be, you know, 30 degrees, one direction, or another, it might be a bit much, but you, you get the idea. It could be a couple degrees one way or another, but then at least with that little step, the plane won't move around on you. And the more you plane it, the, the wider those reference areas are going to get to the point where when you see like the inside corners formed in that step, when you see that disappear, you're done. You now have a single geometric plane. Don't plane anymore. Um, the one thing I will tell you is the problem that a lot of people face is when you unclamp it and you unfold it like a book and if it doesn't come right together right, it's kind of a pain to do it again because your edges were all perfectly flush and lined up. So now you have to create that little step again and do it over. So if you think you're there, take maybe one or two more passes so that you don't have to like reline everything up again. So give that a shot. Um, I call that match planning 2.0, by the way, the little step thing that's uh, that's copyrighted. You can <laughs> you can use it though. Match planning two electric boogaloo. All right. <laughs> yeah. So I think that just about does it for the show. If you want to leave us a review hey. on iTunes, go ahead. Go ahead. See if we care. Just leave a review and uh, <laughs> maybe maybe we'll read it sometime in the future. Uh, and pretty cheeky today. That's right. Very cheeky. I'm a cheeky every day. Um, yeah. Yeah. And if you want to help support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash wood talk or even uh, twwstore.com. Get yourself a nice wood talk t shirt. I want to get the stickers in there. I was uh, alerted to the fact that our wood talk stickers are not available for separate purchase in the store, that they're just part of our Patreon rewards and i think they should be yeah available. they're exclusive yeah but uh, i want people to be able to buy them and ultimately i just want people to have the damn stickers you know like i, I don't it's not like it's a Such giant a capitalist <laughs> it's not a, a big profit center people. for us um anyways shannon why don't you give them the contact info and we can get out of here okay if you have comments questions or desperately desperately need a sticker there's several ways that you can contact <laughs> us sleep please send us a voicemail 
use your voice memo app, record yourself singing something and send it to woodtalkonline at gmail.com or write it out. Go to woodtalkshow.com slash contact and type it in there and we will get to it at some point. At some point. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And we will catch you next week. Goodbye. Enjoy your life. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.